Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Real Lives Untold podcast with myself, Trina O'Connor. And myself, Sarah O'Connor. We are focusing on all things crime and human interest. We're creating a space for people to tell their stories, the raw, unedited version. The only thing that could have stopped him would have been if he himself was locked up. You cannot put the victims, the survivors, in a cage. You can't mitigate that level of risk without focusing on the perpetrator. Three years ago this week, on the night of the 22nd into the 23rd of October 2020, IT specialist Samir Syed travelled to the home of his estranged wife, 37-year-old Seema Banu, and their two children, 11-year-old Asfira and 6-year-old Faizan. It was under cover of darkness and he was dressed as a woman. In a horrific case of familicide, he murdered all three by strangling them with a ligature and then left a tap on, flooding the house in the Llewellyn estate in Ballantyre in South Dublin. Their bodies were discovered a few days later. Syed was an abusive husband and father who would torture them. He had moved them from their home country in India two years beforehand and Seema Banu, who was unhappy here, was planning on moving back. Syed would regularly go to the house even after a court ordered him to stay away when he was charged and was to stand trial accused of seriously assaulting Seema Banu by strangling her to an unresponsive state. In this episode, we talk to Women's Aid CEO Sarah Benson, who says the focus in this case should have been on the perpetrator. She questions why he was not behind bars at the time. Trina and I also talk to Seema Banu's nephew, Kashif Ahmed, who travelled to Dublin for the inquest into their deaths earlier this year. I was a bit nervous and uh, I was controlling my emotions at that time uh, because Mm. one of my cousins was... He was like uh, crying loud, like a baby. I should uh, look after him, and I, I am nervous, and I'm taking care of him. Yeah, it was uh, hectic for me. And I imagine um, your trip to Ireland. You would have imagined that you would have been coming under very different circumstances. Yeah, you would have been. Your first trip to Ireland would have been a happy occasion to come and see your family. So for you, um, the reason you came to Ireland was to pay tribute to your family and um, I suppose to honour their their memory. Yes. Um, And would you mind telling us a little bit about Seema and and the children and who they were and what they enjoyed doing and what their lives were like? And you were close growing up, yeah? All of them like uh, were like a happy family. First of all, 
uh, i don't know what the circumstances made him to do that but they were a happy family before the uh, incident or uh, before before they went to ireland we were like uh, whenever something would uh, we wanted to uh, take suggestions we would like to take suggestions from seema because uh, though she was a anger she would guide everyone and uh, the kids were like uh, happy where we were playing and i i love automobiles and though uh, faizan was and he was like uh, get me a ride get me a ride and we both were close uh, faizan and me myself uh, i don't know much about asfira i was not talking to her <laughs> uh she was a smart girl as i know mm-hmm. uh, i have uh, talked to her much uh, two to three times when i visited the house because she was like uh, uh, she was with my cousins uh, girl cousins yeah and they yeah. had been in contact with you quite a bit since they left india didn't they yes yes sima was in contact uh, like uh, greeting uh, assalamu alaikum like that how are you what are you doing like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she was sending the audio clips because she couldn't type it ah. okay so she was kind of like the matriarch that everybody looked up to in the family and they spoke to her if they were looking for advice so she was very important yes. to the family mm-hmm. so yeah, so they, she was an important member of the family yeah so to honor her memory and and i think it's important that we speak about her today and speak her name um in terms of what seema did in ireland what what was her did she work in ireland or was she a homemaker or what was it she did um when she moved to ireland she, she was a homemaker because uh she doesn't know english or she doesn't know anything about much more about the work uh, uh she was a mm-hmm. perfect homemaker uh, maybe that was the main reason because uh she couldn't find her way out and she was bored out of the uh, uh staying yeah. in home so so she may have wanted to change traditionally yeah. what she had done so that could have been what kind of started the argument is that what you think kashif yes okay yeah yeah and what was her mood like when she arrived here did she want to be here kashif she said okay just because her husband wanted to uh, bring her over to ireland uh, she was not not happy she was just like my family is there and le- let's go let's be uh, mm-hmm. uh, live a life over there she just wanted to uh, her family to be happy that's it Mhm. And she adored those two children. Yeah. And they were in school locally. Yes. And they 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 were enjoying school. Yes. Uh, she, uh both yeah. the children were uh, uh admitted over here uh the at the school nearby to my college as well. Yeah. And what did her husband do in Ireland? What what was his job? I don't know much about it but uh once I have I had talked to him he said and he is an IT guy IT professional Mhm Yeah so so you went you, you went close to her husband no, you didn't no, really no. know him no uh, I was yeah. scared of him uh whenever I used to greet him he 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 won't smile at all Mhm Mhm like that So seems... your impression of him wasn't great was it Yeah it wasn't great Tell us a little bit about your interactions with him. Starting uh, uh, before he visited to Dubai or something else, uh, uh, to, or to Ireland, uh, he he was working in Chennai, then in the Bangalore. Uh, 
whenever he used to visit the village we used to play when we were kids uh, we used to play cricket uh, even though samir also Mm-hmm. and later on when he came back from dubai he tried to uh, keep a distance uh, uh, from the all of the family members and yeah. he was acting rude and i didn't like it or something might change my mind uh, not to greet him or not to be with him okay. because you're an extremely polite man that you would still continue to be polite even though he's impolite uh, i used to greet yeah. him uh, even though he won't reply or smile i used to greet him all the family members were used to greet mm. him and yeah. and did seema ever seem unhappy to you in her marriage before she moved to ireland yeah she was happy oh she was happy and it was only when she yeah. came to ireland do you think that she started to kind of maybe want to change uh, maybe um, my thinking is that uh, she, uh, she felt alone over there and uh, though because the children were in the school and the husband wasn't over there or the family members was wasn't there to talk with her or uh, spend time with her yeah. uh, it was like an emptiness she might have felt the emptiness in her mm-hmm. life and might be that thing but she, she had left india kashif and and he had left india samir sayed because he faced a charge over there didn't he of of domestic violence towards uh in 2019 yes uh when they uh came came back to india uh in 2019 um there was a fight between uh, seema and uh, uh samir just because uh, when he entered one of my cousin's home uh, he grabbed uh, my uh, the neck of my uh, grandfather uh, seema's father uh, just because he didn't greet greet him uh, and he was lying on the bed uh, my grandfather uh, he didn't greet him and he was a bit angry and he said that uh, uh he hold uh, him like this uh a show uh, uh what do we call it collar yeah. uh then uh, uh, seema came into between came in between and uh he tried to hit her i just uh, listen from my one of my cousin who was present over there mm-hmm. uh, i don't know exactly what happened over there uh but after that they had uh, the neighbor members had uh, complaint in the police station or in india um that incident in india in 2019 of course we know from from the inquest and the evidence uh during that inquest that must have been very traumatic to listen to all of that evidence yeah uh, of yeah. of what was happening over here when she was here uh her finger was broken and she had scars on the uh, neck uh, and she was uh, she had a cigarette uh, burn okay. in the hand later on when we saw her a uh, hand or something uh, it might happen in the airline we don't we don't know about that and and she had gone she had gone to a refuge hadn't she within a couple of weeks of coming to ireland she had gone to a women's refuge like a shelter yeah, yeah. and do you know what happened with that why she didn't stay or or, or what happened do you think it could have been because she didn't have much english or do you think it might have been difficult for her to communicate uh, no uh 
as per my understanding uh, at that time she, uh, she she had left to talk with her uh, for a couple of uh, minutes uh, with the samir uh, samir might uh, she she had mentioned the, in the video uh, and in the call uh, that uh, if uh, I, i didn't take the complaint back uh, her children would taken away from her and uh, she was worried about that Mm-hmm. because she mm-hmm. loved her children and mm-hmm. they were her uh, life and so was... uh, she wanted to ta- uh, take uh, she decided to take back the uh, this thing uh, the FIR complaint yeah case and back was... and then uh, she doesn't want to take the refuge and that's what we heard in the evidence isn't it kashif that yes as trina said two weeks after she and uh, the children arrived here Uh, and it was Christmas Eve in 2018 that she went to a security guard in a supermarket about Samir yes. Syed and she said that you know he was very dangerous that he will that he will kill me yes and uh, before going back, uh, when he ran uh, to uh, this thing Ireland uh, she had told us that uh, where we asked her uh, not everyone asked her but some of the family members asked her why are you going back uh to ireland uh, even though she he left uh, you here and he ran off uh she said that uh he would torture me but he won't kill me like like this was her wordings mm-hmm. he might hit me or torture me uh he, he won't kill me or my children's he love my children's mm-hmm. she was saying like that That's that's very hard for you to relive, Kashif. Um, very, like what you what your family is going through is just horrendous. This beautiful woman who was the matriarch in the family, and it must have been very hard for you to let her go back to Ireland when he came and attacked your grandfather because it wasn't just words anymore. You had physically seen what he'd done. A, a defenseless old, old man he had attacked, and so yeah. Uh, because no one were present over there uh, he wouldn't dare uh, if one of my uncle was over there or one of us cousins were there because we wouldn't uh, left him like that mm-hmm. and she there were a lot of uh, video recordings to the family during her time here and the guards established that there was a lot of course of control because she would say that everything was fine more or less wouldn't she yeah uh, she was being controlled and she uh, she was uh, not allowed to use the phone all of the time mm-hmm. and can we then i'm not sure if you heard and your family heard then straight away in in india after that time in in uh, 2020 in may 2020 when he strangled her and left her unconscious and he was charged of course after that what was your yeah uh, what happened then with the family what was your reaction to that at the time uh, we were like uh, helpless and uh, and we asked are you okay or uh, do, do you need assistance to come back or something like that uh, to, uh, we we said that left, leave him and come back to india uh, we will take care of you or mm-hmm. like that but she was she was just <sighs> it's like determined uh, uh, i suppose to to stay with her children and protect them and and keep the marriage going perhaps 
it's it's very hard, isn't it, when somebody's so isolated and in that coercive control, and they're almost, I suppose, brainwashed that they don't have any rights, say, to their children. And if he was working on her every day, mm-hmm. mentally emotionally and then physically you can understand can't you how she would feel there was just no 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 hope for for her yeah she was helpless yeah. uh, she was agreeing for all of his uh, nonsense or uh, uh, to make the videos uh, in uh, in behalf of him uh, mm-hmm. uh, like you saw in the evidence provided in the court uh, she was agreeing everything to yeah, uh, uh, to say the video to make the video or to say he was a, a well man well mannered man and everything and after he was charged with that he was released on bail yeah. and he was ordered by the court not to go near the house and the guards established that he did on numerous occasions made his way you know under cover of darkness to the house And it was then that he would, you know, coercively control her in relation to those video recordings and the message that was getting back to the family. uh, Yeah, no one went uh, aware of it. Uh, Only my granny was aware of it. He was uh, uh, visiting the uh, home every uh, almost a couple of nights in the in one week or a couple of uh, days. Uh, He was visiting at night uh, many a times. Mm-hmm. Only granny was aware of it. Uh, after the death and we got to know about it, uh, I was inquiring a lot in the family uh, because no one were uh, trying to look out what happened. Everyone were uh, feeling uh, hopeless and, and everyone was uh, uh, crying sad. Mm-hmm. No one were pointing out him or what happened. How did it happen? Yeah. It's so unimaginable, isn't it, Kashif, to imagine that somebody who is supposed to love you is the most dangerous person to you. And even um, Seema herself tried to reassure you, he won't kill me, he will only torture me. So she didn't believe that he would kill her or indeed her children. Now, Aspera, the little girl, she was only 11, but she was described as being very mature for her age. Um, Do you think that's maybe because of what she witnessed in the home and was she was she a happy child can you remember uh she was a happy child when she was here yeah. uh then later on she used she was like a sad girl and mm. she was like uh keeping all the emotions within uh herself yeah yeah like that yeah in such a short life 11 oh like. my god it's horrendous and and for them to be to experience such unhappiness here as well yeah. um, in isolation, yeah. you know, and he, he ensured that was the case. Can I ask yeah. Kashif, you know, about that awful day? I remember it well because I covered it. I remember that afternoon hearing about uh, Seema and the children's bodies being found at their family home. Can I can you go back to that day and how that message was relayed to you and how your family reacted and took it? It was uh, morning 4.30 over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, my One of my aunt got a call from uh, Gardai and she was like, uh, someone is calling and saying uh, family members are dead in the island. Uh, I, she, we, were, we thought it was a bluff and 
everyone everyone in the family was scared about that and uh, we got the news i was in uh, office uh, at that time and uh, rushing to the office uh, mm-hmm. i was driving i got a call at 10 am uh, from my one of my cousin that uh, uh, we got a call and everyone are scared uh, we don't know what to do uh, uh, please come back to village uh, like that Uh, i just uh, i rushed to village then uh, everyone in the village uh, like we have uh, houses are nearby uh, the family members and everyone everyone were uh, assembled at one of the house and everyone were crying and scared it was an awful day and uh, no one believed it or we had a misunderstanding or uh, we thought uh, or i thought uh, i thought that someone is uh, pranking uh, like that yeah and then i got the number with uh, which they had called to my aunt and i called and that the news was uh, correct and we uh, saw the news in the uh, website wow Because it's so unimaginable. Then, oh, I can't Sarah, even like, imagine the shock what you went of, through. The shock of that, like you, you, you wouldn't want to believe. And we don't know what to do. Uh, how to do? We went to police station in India, and they said it's not our jurisdiction or something like within the country have happened, mm. and it's uh, beyond. Uh, it's an international, and we can't help you out yeah. like that. So so you didn't receive support from the Irish um yeah we, we received the support from uh, Irish Gardai and everyone uh though i made the contacts from uh, yeah yeah yes and did, did did the indian government support you in any way no no, no. okay no all right and can i ask you what was uh, the family's instinct about what happened Did they immediately know that it was Samir Syed was responsible? Yes, because yeah. they were uh, in contact with a uh, daily or whenever he is not in home, Samir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got to uh, my granny straight away said that he is the one who is guilty. He did it, and mm. I started work. uh collecting the evidences from everyone of the family members or someone have kept the pictures or messages something else i was looking after it mm-hmm. and you then spoke... i provided the details yeah and then he spoke to you or your family members in the days that followed didn't he? didn't he online no uh af- after the incidents uh two or three days passed out and i requested the gardai to make uh, insist him to talk to us okay. because if he isn't guilty he'll yeah. straight away call us yeah. and say that uh, mm-hmm. uh, the terrible incidents have happened or something like that mm-hmm. uh, i don't know uh, what to do and he was like when i called him uh, when i insisted him to call me af- uh, after the three days three to four days okay. uh, when god i make him to call us and i called him uh, and one of my uncle rizwan uh, talked to him uh, he was he said just two words this happened that's it right. this thing happened yeah and he started crying 
I think it's a crocodile eyes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So he was crying for himself. Yeah. And he knew yeah. that I suppose he had spoken to the Gardaí at that stage, but the, he was certainly, you know, top on their radar. They hadn't arrested him, though, at that point. So maybe he thought yeah. he might get away with it. I thought so. Uh, he might get away uh, because uh, the many, many days have had been passed and mm-hmm. he was he wasn't being caught. Uh, whenever I I used to call the guard, I please update me, please. Uh, and they used to say that uh, uh, we are working on it. Uh, we have collecting the evidence uh, against him and we are get. Uh, it's a long process. Uh, they used to uh, give us the uh, hopes, yeah, so and after okay. after uh, some ta- some days, uh, one of the guard I called me. Uh, I was in Mysore. Uh, she was happy, and she said uh, he got caught. Yeah, our uh, work was uh, a success. Yeah. Was success successful? Yeah. yeah. yeah how was... how long after? Um, the 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 murder was he charged do you recall how long it was uh it was uh, uh, after 40 days i guess before yeah, uh, after the death of uh, uh, our grandfather and now and i suppose now you know why it took a little bit of time because the guards were gathering all that evidence yes. that they that you know all the cctv footage that they trolled through with him coming yeah. over on numerous they occasions had an dressed every, as a woman uh, inch of details uh, of that yeah they yeah got and dropping that, that key yeah. dropping that key in the yeah in the uh, he dropped the key in the, in the drainage uh, uh, yeah mm. yeah so they were doing phenomenal work and had a, a major case against him yeah and he knew yes. it and when you found out then about him being found dead in his cell in the Midlands prison just a week before the trial was due to start. Yes. Uh, that was in uh, June 2022. Three of us were, uh, uh, were coming uh, at that time. Uh, my aunt, uh, one of my, uh, two of my aunts and me. Uh, one of my uncle was coming to Ireland uh, for the case. Uh, uh, I got a call uh, and... Uh, saying that uh, he hanged himself in prison. Uh, I was like shocked. He took an easy way out mm-hmm. without facing the trial. So do you feel then for your family, you've kind of missed out on justice there because he... Yeah, uh, he, like I, you I said, felt like that. Uh, mm-hmm. We won't get justice uh, yeah. uh, f- when he it took the easy way out. Yeah, yeah. That was very disappointing that you didn't get to face yes, him. I would. Everyone in the family was disappointed. Yeah, yeah. And how did it feel then? I know the inquest took a little while um, before they were heard. How did it feel then? I suppose you were representing your family coming over here to visit the graves, to listen, to to also to give evidence, you know, on behalf of of the family, and I suppose also for Seema and the two children. Uh, they said that uh, even though we can't visit uh, again or uh, maybe not or maybe we can visit or maybe not we can uh, so they were uh, saying pray for them and uh, plant uh, uh, flowers in the grave or uh, or a gravestone over there mm-hmm. they were like pray for them pray, pray as much as you can for them uh, like that 
And that and that's important in your religion and that's important yes. in your tradition that you can honor the lives of those mm. by coming yes. to their grave, by being there. So did did going to Seema's grave and the children's grave, did that give you look, it's not going to give you a huge amount of comfort, but did it help in any way for you? Yes. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh uh I felt uh easy. Uh I felt peace in my heart and when I visited over there and when I watered the grave and planted a flower yeah. okay, right. it was a peace for me and mm. yeah yeah. and I can imagine another grave injustice here is that Samir Syed insisted that the bodies of Seema mm. and Asferas Faisan could not be repatriated back to their family in India that must have been horrendous that he still had that control at that point. Because he was the next of kin at that time. Uh, e- even though he was know. under investigation, he still, because he was next to kin, he still was had, an next he was of ultimate, kin. Yeah. yeah, he was allowed to make that. that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's another injustice. I though I tried a lot, I, yeah. I couldn't make that happen. I know. Yeah, but and then as you say in your religion, once they're buried, that's they they cannot be. And he would have known back. that. He would have known, known, known that. Absolutely. Another another cruelty on another cruelty. He knew that. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate injustice. Cruel right till the end. Yeah. So in terms of going forward, then Sarah, we've been so, speaking, haven't we? And we have been speaking to, and you know, you you spoke to me about you know you wanted to raise money, um, for a gravestone for Seema Banu. Yeah. And for yeah. Asfira and Faisan, and they're buried out in in Newcastle Cemetery in southwest Dublin. And uh, I know that uh, their neighbour, Seema's friend and neighbour, uh, has organised a GoFundMe page, and already it's doing really, really well. And a GoFundMe gravestone for Seema, Asfira, and Faisan, and already uh, I, I think it's it's way above the actual goal amount. So they're going to get their gravestone, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. What would be even yeah. more amazing is if the family could come over and visit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again. Family members would feel happy. Yeah. yeah. Because I think it would be really fitting for you and your family to come over and see that gravestone when it's there. And I was also talking to one of Seema's friends and she didn't want me to go into details about her name, but she 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 said that one important aspect of the inquest at the end of the inquest was what the jury recommended about support for people like SEMA, that when when this yeah. happens in this country, that automatically there is a, a you know a state support yeah. in terms of TUSA to come in yeah, and take care of the children. And, yes, uh, there isn't an uh, women uh, welfare or kind of thing. Uh, uh, in situation like SEMA, uh, there should be uh, uh, support for the women also. Uh, who is suffering of from all of this? Yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah. so, it should trigger like Julie mentioned that. Yeah, like yes. it should trigger a safeguarding. There should be a protocol around safeguarding yes. of the adult, not just safeguarding of the children, and particularly for somebody in Seema's yeah. situation, somebody who English is their second language, they may not have a lot of friends, they may not understand the laws of this country because he was telling her that she wouldn't get her children when, in fact, that was not the case at all. He, but he manipulated her. Yeah, he yeah. did manipulate her. And especially somebody as vulnerable as her who was going to be 
the main witness in yeah. that case, that initial assault causing harm case after he had, you know, strangled her yeah. to an unresponsive state just five months beforehand. And that was just coming up. Oh. So he had it was so premeditated on his part, wasn't it, Kashif? Yes, he, he he took control right till the end. But I think I think from listening to your story, Kashif, and I think our listeners will hear the testimony and the testimony of the family and the the importance of Seema's life and who she was and how important she was and the legacy that she's left behind of kindness and compassion um, and, and an honour to her that, you know, people want to hear this story. I, I, I Like, we yeah, can't I, I, thank you enough for, you, you know, you so much. retelling it because it's so, it's such a traumatic event. And I, I, do, I do hope that by speaking her name and talking about her story that you will get comfort um, and people might relate to this and might get some supports. And we'll also, I suppose, pay tribute to her dad who passed yeah. away shortly after she yeah. died and, and the children died. She couldn't, he couldn't bear the... Uh, Trauma. Yeah. Broken heart. Like uh, calling me every day after the incident. What happened? What happened? Did he got caught? What happened? He was asking me every single uh, hour because I was in the village for almost eight months over there Mm. after the incidents. I never moved out. And and he's at peace now and they're together now and... um, I suppose for for her family, I suppose you get some peace with that. Yeah. Kashif, thanks so much. Thank you, Kashif. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sarah Benson of Women's Aid, thanks so much for joining us this evening. We've interviewed Kashif Ahmed, who is the nephew of Seema Banu. And you'll be, of course, very well aware of that case. Three years ago this week, actually, when Seema Banu and her two children, Asfira and Faizan, were found uh, dead, murdered in their home in Ballantyre in South Dublin by Samir Syed. Immediately he became the, the chief suspect and eventually was charged with their murders. And of course, he was found dead in a cell a week before he was due to go on trial. And it was really, I suppose, the evidence during the inquest that was heard earlier this year that brought it to the fore, the type of personality of this man, that he had abused them in India, uh, they had moved to Ireland and that abuse continued. And we heard during the inquest about the torture that, that Seema and Banu and her two children were subjected to by Samir Syed. And even after he was charged with assault causing harm by strangling her, which was five months, I think, before he actually murdered them. 
he still continued, even though there was a barring order in place, to, to come over to the house and to, to torture them. In terms of this case, I suppose one of the recommendations was uh, during the inquest by the jury was that, you know, there maybe should have been some specific supports for Seema Banu. There were obviously for the children, but that maybe she should have been checked on as well. And there should have been maybe a specific safeguard for her as an adult. What What's your take on that, Sarah, as as, as a CEO of Women's Aid and, and what happened in that case? Well, I mean, Women's Aid have also been the kind of custodians of the Femicide Watch for Ireland, which is women who've died violently at the hands of men since 1996. And so we know that 263 women uh, have died in violent circumstances in that time. And Simo was one of those women mm-hmm. and then her two beautiful children, of course, um, as well. So we we obviously think a lot about what could we do in this country collectively to try and prevent these atrocities, these um, these terrible, violent, you know, completely unnecessary deaths occurring? And a lot of attention is often paid to the victim. Um, and in Seema's case, it was reported that she had had contact with, you know, one of the specialist domestic violence services that, you know, social work were aware of the case. But when you look at what happened and you look at the decisions and the choices that the perpetrator made in this instance, mm-hmm. having somebody visit the home, you know, maybe of an afternoon, having access to someone to talk to or even to plan or strategize with, I don't believe would have prevented what happened um, and what he did. The fact is she had already actually navigated several systems, in some cases mm-hmm. with support, in some cases courageously on her own, to go to court, to apply for a barring order, to press criminal charges, you know, so that all of these things were outstanding. And I think at that point, if somebody is breaching a barring order, at that point, if there's already outstanding charges against them, I think the question has to be, why was this person at large? Yeah. Why did they not have uh, bail revoked? Why were they not in jail? Um, Because to be honest, the only thing I think in this case, um, but I want to be careful, I'm not familiar with all of the details. The only thing I can see that would have stopped this man dressing up as a woman, coming by stealth to a home that he refused to stay away from, to a family who he took the radical step of removing from their country of origin so that he could continue to control and torture them as he did. The only thing that could have stopped him would have been if he himself was locked up. You cannot put the victims, the survivors in a cage. That's not the solution. You cannot say you can't go out. You, You know, you can't mitigate that level of risk without focusing on the perpetrator. So that's where the the, the focus should have been on Samir Syed. Well, it's hard to know if that would have made any difference. But I think in this country, we don't have an established system of domestic homicide reviews. Um, We now have them in the north. We have them across the other jurisdictions of the United Kingdom. We have a very extensive, in-depth, independent study of familicide and domestic homicide uh, reviews, which was published earlier this year, which has over 180 recommendations, one of which is offering mechanisms by which this country should establish domestic homicide reviews, which are designed not to find fault, but very much to find uh, learning as to where were opportunities missed here. And I think in this case, you would be looking at 
where were opportunities for intervention or for um, controlling the movements of this perpetrator may be missed in that situation. I think that's what we'd be looking at. And and we don't have those here. And I think it's something that we urgently need to look at. The report is there. The recommendations are there. Yeah. So that's something you would you would push for as a priority. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Where people sit down and they lay out, you know, the intersecting points that a family and that would be the victim, survivor, the perpetrator. It's engaging with their family, those who knew them best. It's engaging and and sharing and cross-referencing knowledge uh, of contacts with other services. That could include medical services, um, police, specialist domestic violence services, in some cases, maybe mental health services and saying, okay, you know, did this agency know that this was happening? Yeah. Um, did this service the know? Did about? the yep. school know? You know, and, and what then was missed? And, mm-hmm. and and it's not, again, to find fault. It's to go, well, what could we maybe do and adjust in all of our practices or our policies and procedures to make sure that for the next family, that that little bit of information that could have been so crucial, that, that wasn't missed or that that action that could have been taken, you know, had this information been known, you know, what could we do better yeah. next time? And if that information was shared yeah. across all the agencies, there would be so much more awareness of the warning signs. Yeah, within the very contained and you know structured mechanism of a domestic homicide review. So it's not sharing information willy nilly. It's just yeah. it's creating a yeah. structure in which um, that's done in the spirit of trying to prevent you know needless atrocities in the future. And you said there, I think it's the figure is two hundred and sixty three femicides since 1996. We know that in the case of homicide in Ireland, the majority Mm. now are related to domestic abuse at this stage. So I suppose in terms of the patterns involved, most of those women are either trying to leave or they have left. That's the, the most dangerous time for women and it continues to be so. Yeah. And of the cases that have been resolved, the vast majority, 87%, were uh, murdered by women or by uh, somebody known to them, a man known to them, and 53% uh, by a current or former partner. So by far the majority, uh, you know, cohort of perpetrators are current or former intimate partners. And you're quite right, the most dangerous time in a relationship which is predicated on one party maintaining power and control over the other is the moment when that power and control may be lost, which is when they discover that their partner may be about to leave or in the uh, months mm-hmm. immediately after um, uh, the the, uh, the the abused party, party yeah. has separated. And that is a time of extreme high risk. So what should women who are who are in, you know, it's clear their, their, their relationship is abusive. They want to leave. They're planning on leaving. What, what would your advice be to them? My first bit of advice is to anybody around a woman who is in a coercive and controlling relationship, Mm -hmm. because I think it's really important that people understand the impact of coercive control. Coercive control is a pattern of behaviour which is um, designed through a a wide variety of different behaviours, which can include threats. It doesn't have to include physical violence. It may, um, but there's the threats. There's the isolating tactics are enormously effective. There's economic abuse, you know, making sure that they don't have money or means. But there's that kind of psychological terrorism of wearing somebody down, making them feel worthless, getting in their heads so much 
so that their every waking thought is filtered through how is he going to react if I do this, if mm-hmm. I say this, if I speak to this person, if I go to this place, if I wear this outfit. It is absolute control and it is referred to as a liberty crime because that is literally what it does. It makes it so that the victim feels that they have no way out. Yeah, even and though the door is wide open. Even though the door yeah. may be wide open, he's in their head 24-7. Yeah. And I say that because it's really important that people understand when they see the door open and they ask that question, why doesn't she just leave? Is that It's not that straightforward. Yeah. You know, if somebody has been worked on that vigorously, you know, it has that impact. So... There is still, would you agree, Sarah, that there, there's an awful lot of judgment in from society and actually a lot of judgment from women, you know, on women in these situations. Yeah. They don't understand it. I know it's not from a, it's not a conscious thing, but mm. it's there, though. The stigma is still very much there. And we know that about a third of women who are subjected to abuse at any age won't tell anybody ever. They won't tell a friend or family, you know, and and. and at the same time, though, I think it's very important to say that women do escape and they survive and they thrive, as mm-hmm. do their children. But the reason I said that is that it's so important that people understand that, you know, people need support when they're yeah. in that situation. Yeah. It's very hard to do it alone. You know, some will, but that, that that's kind of really yeah. battling the odds. They yeah. need support. So they need a community of support out there. They need people to understand what's going on. They need people not to shut the door on somebody because she stopped phoning or stopped turning up at events or, you know, because yeah. that may be actually a pattern of what's to going on. To read between the her. lines. Yeah. Absolutely. I also think it's really important to know that when somebody is coercive and controlling, they often will groom somebody's entire family, friend network, they will be gaslighting her and at the same time misrepresenting her to family and friends. They'll be saying that she's maybe, you know, they'll be questioning her mental health. Um, They'll Mm -hmm. be lying about her behaviour, you know, maybe her as she is as a mother. They will do anything they can to undermine and isolate her or they will take another tactic, which is just to directly isolate her and, you know, say that they don't feel comfortable being around her family and friends and and act, you know, cold. Mm -hmm. But both things happen um, because anyone who is coercive and controlling will know that knocking off, you know, somebody's yeah. support system, yeah. you know, isolating them, uh, you know, and then they find themselves in this bubble, this vacuum where an absolutely abnormal relationship feels normal because they have no other frame of reference. Yeah. You know, that's simply part of the the abuse. But there are specialist support services out there. We know that when, you know, employers are supportive, we know when family and friends are supportive, um, that can mean absolutely all the difference. Supportive also doesn't mean telling somebody what to do. It doesn't mean having to have the solutions. It simply means being there and, and becoming part of that support network for somebody. And and you'll know from all of the calls that Women's Aid receives, I think it went up by, was it up to 43% or something during COVID? During COVID. Um, yeah. But in terms of, I, I think it was, it was interesting, a lot of around that time when domestic violence really came to the forefront in terms of what people were thinking of it and, and they became more aware of it, was that a lot of famous people came out, came out and, and spoke about their experiences in the past. So as Amy Schumer said, I think mm. a year or so ago, that no one is exempt from this. This can affect you no matter what walk of life you're in, what age you are, uh, you know, how far into your relationship you're at. And mm. I think that needs to be kind of broken down in terms of a way of thinking. Absolutely. The single greatest risk factor of both domestic and sexual violence, although sexual violence, of course, can occur in domestic violence, mm-hmm. is simply being born female. 
Yeah. That's it. Happens, it's, it, it is the most democratic of crimes. It happens across all uh, faiths, uh, ethnicities, nationalities, religions, um, classes. Um, yeah. But what I will say is that there is an intersectional factor that can impact on somebody's ability to seek help. Um, so while, you know, perpetrators of domestic violence, you know, are are, are, are manifest in all of those um, demographics, society itself does discriminate. And so, you know, if you're a woman who's also a migrant woman, if you're a woman who's also a traveller woman, mm-hmm. if you're a woman who's also a disabled woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that can create, you know, and there are other intersectional factors, but, you know, that can also create barriers. If your immigration status is precarious, if you yeah. don't have family supports because, you know, you're from another, you know, you've, you've gone to another country, as is the case with SEMA, absolutely so deliberate. Much, so vulnerable. Yeah, so, so vulnerable. Yeah. And that, that was really clear in, in Seema's case that mm. she, she was, you know, and she wasn't here that long. And, and probably, you know, as much as there were some people around her, um, that she she was so vulnerable and, and I'm sure there was a language barrier there as Didn't well. Didn't know her rights and entitlements yeah. in a faraway country, away from her family and friends, mm-hmm. um, been given no opportunity to expand any. So like it's all by design, you know. Yeah. So there are some who need that additional recognition that like, you know, not the systems can be difficult to access, but for some they're even more difficult to access. And that's where, again, you know, we need to be really mindful that we have to provide things like interpretation. We have to collaborate as women's aid do with you know our colleagues in migrant support services mm-hmm. or you know with you know with disabled women activists and and really highlight that our structures and systems need to be available to everybody yeah and of course we have the launch of this new agency next year the domestic gender and sexual based violence agency is that going to change things are you hopeful yes in short i mean we've had some really accelerated activity in terms of legislation on both domestic and sexual violence in the Mm. last, you know, um, five, eight years. You know, we've the Sexual Offences Act, we've the updated Domestic Violence Act. Just recently, we have, you know, harassment, which covers online uh, safety. We've now uh, standalone offensive stalking, which Mm -hmm. is soon to be commenced. There's online safety, um, you know, kind of on the civil side of things. Um, And we have this really good national strategy. It's the best one we've ever had. It also talks about things like prevention, you know, even in schools around, Mm. you know, how equality and respect and teaching that is going to be fundamental to raise generations, future generations where this isn't an issue. And there is a new agency that is being set up, this um, DSGBV, so Domestic Sexual and Gender Based Violence Agency, which is going to take responsibility for coordinating, you know, the funding of, you know, special services, domestic and sexual violence services. So there's a lot of opportunity here. So, yeah, we have to be optimistic. I think it's going to be really important that that agency is given the esteem it needs. But I also think it's equally important that people don't think this agency is going to solve domestic, sexual and gender based violence. They will be monitoring the work across all of government. And that is going to be the most important thing is to be really clear about this isn't just a matter for justice. It's not just a matter for TUSLA. It's not just a matter for the specialist agencies. It's education, it's housing, it's social um, uh, social policy, uh, social welfare. Yeah, you know, there's really something for everybody. There's yeah. media for online. So everybody has a part to play. So this is the opportunity now for us to really see that in action. And to eradicate the, the scourge, what would you, you said, you talked about the domestic homicide reviews, that that should be a priority. What else? What What one thing could really help now? 
So obviously a domestic homicide review can only happen after a domestic homicide. So we have to be working on other fronts as well. And I think that is where things like legislation, the implementation of legislation, but really it, the, the tough work is around the context of gender inequality. Why is it that, you know, women are murdered in this way, in this context, usually after, you know, often many, many years of actually being tortured while alive, you know, yeah. as unequal, you know, in their relationship. Um, the context of that is gender inequality. And that does intersect with obviously women's options and more likely to have, you know, uh, be in precarious work, more likely to have uh, the high responsibility for care, more likely to be paid less. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things are factors. Um, And while we've a conversation happening right now that is more open to addressing and tackling, you know, the difficult questions around male violence against women, we can't take for granted that we also have a significant backlash, you know, in the likes of. You know, and he's just one example who happens to be very visible, but he's far from alone. You know, Andrew Tate, you know, this concept of masculinity, which we'd like to think is, you know, diminishing, isn't necessarily. You know, we know, unfortunately, from our dedicated project for younger people, uh, Two Into You, is that one in five young women by the age of 25 is still being subjected to abuse. 51% of them under the age of 18, Mm -hmm. you know, the impact of pornography on uh, young people's sexuality, the increase in um, young people, boys perpetrating sexual violence against young people. You know, these are things we have to be really vigilant to. So to my mind, the most important thing is actually ensuring that that dialogue is open, that we find a way to have it with both boys and men in a way that doesn't bring down a kind of the shutters of defensiveness, Mm -hmm. but at the same time is really kind of saying... And starts early. Absolutely, that we're all born into this society. Um, And it's not really great for boys, you know, in terms of being their authentic selves as as diverse as, Mm. you know, women are. If we don't really, really challenge this kind of narrow definition of masculinity, which says, you know, that anger is the only acceptable emotion for boys and men, that, you know, uh, humour is about othering other people and usually takes kind of sexist or homophobic, you know, terms. That's the stuff that we really need to kind of unpick and unpack. And so working collaboratively with, you know, kind of men's organisations, teachers, Mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. That's really slow work, but actually that's the stuff that is going to help us kind of get beyond superficial responses or responses that are about kind of what what we call um, secondary prevention, which is where already some harm has happened, you know, and uh, and somebody has already been hurt. Yeah. And I suppose just to to finish on this, remembering the victims, unfortunately, that have been killed all of those those women um, and that their memory you know lives on and I know that it as I said at the beginning it's three years since Mm. uh, Seema Banu and her two children were murdered Mm. Um, it's hard to believe and I know that there was a lovely fundraising effort to provide a gravestone for her and the children uh, out in Newcastle and 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 that has been done and and the gravestone has been ordered Mm. we understand so it's important would yeah. you say that that people remember them and that it's, you know, that some victims are remembered more than others? Yeah. And I think when we speak with, as we do, you know, 
different members, family members who are bereaved, you know, they themselves are, you know, then victims of that violence. Yeah. They have lost. Yeah. We know that a lot around the memory is actually around cherishing and naming and talking about the person they were, um, you know, the character they had, the sense of humour they had, the the things they enjoyed doing, you know, um, rather than focusing on the way that their life was robbed. You yes. know? So it's around focusing on the potential that was lost, but also celebrating a life. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult when somebody perhaps, you know, has come, has been brought from another country and there aren't people there to help memorialise them yeah. here so yeah. that we don't think of them as, you know, just the awful, awful way that their life was robbed. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, back in her home country, you know, there are family, there are friends, there are loved ones, Absolutely. there are, you know, former schoolmates who are remembering her and, you know, likewise, you know, her two children. Um, but that is a real difficulty, you know, if somebody, you know, doesn't have somebody to help remind us of the person that they were when they were alive. And I think that that is something that's really important for us to do, not just focus on the manner in which they died. Sarah Benson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You can contact us on social media at Real Lives Untold. Our email address is reallivesuntold at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to hear this season's episodes every Wednesday. You can listen on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have been affected by any of the issues in this episode, you can contact the Women's Aid 24-hour helpline for advice on 1-800-341-900 or the Men's Aid National Helpline on 01-554-3811. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.